Welcome, everyone. So good to be with you and to preach the word uh, to you this morning. I'm excited to do it. Um, Let's just take a moment and pray. Father, I just ask that you would uh, take this message and that you would stir our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. We don't want to just talk about being filled with the Spirit, but we want to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, Lord, do a special work in the hearts of each and every person who is listening out there today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we're going going to look at uh, just half of a verse. Um, Last week we talked about drinking wine and uh, how we should relate to alcohol. I hope that message was thought-provoking to you. Uh, Today we're going to look at the second half of that verse, Ephesians 5.18. So the verse, the whole verse goes, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And uh, I hope no one is sad that I'm not doing uh, Christmas messages in, in December, they're not really Christmas messages, I guess. But I am teaching on Advent themes on Tuesday nights uh, through the Zoom uh, gatherings that we're doing. And we have two more of those, so I encourage you to jump into those. But I thought that, uh, you know, as I kind of looked at the calendar, as I was going through Ephesians, it just kind of worked out that the two Sundays preceding Christmas, uh, I was going to deal with these verses on being filled with the Spirit. So I thought, what what would make Christmas more wonderful than a fresh infilling of the Spirit of God? Um, so I'm excited to talk about these verses today. As I shared in my email, I really love this particular verse, and it might be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Um, I chose to preach on this verse for my senior sermon at Bible College, uh, and it became kind of a life verse for me and something I've sought to live out since coming to Christ in 1989. Well, my aim today is not to discuss how to attain the filling of the Spirit. We're going to talk about that next week a little bit, and also Uh, During the 100 days of pursuit that we're beginning in January, we'll talk a lot about what we can do on our end to prepare for the infilling of the Spirit. But today, I just want to stir you about this gift of the Spirit, and I want you to see the connection between Spirit filling and extraordinary supernatural works that can really only be explained by God. Works that often demonstrate to unbelievers that Christ is real and he is God. He alone is God. I do want to begin by saying, I just feel like I need to say this, that the Spirit, when we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about a person. We aren't talking about a magic wind from God or some kind of spiritual substance that God kind of showers on people. The Spirit is God. The Christian faith teaches the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And if you're baffled by the Trinity, um, you're not alone. It's definitely a mystery. But we just know that when we are referring to the Spirit, we are not talking about a feeling or a rush of inspiration. The Spirit of God lives within us. He takes up residence within us when we come to Christ. Uh, the Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, in this generation, churches have very, very different ideas of the work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that. The Spirit is suppressed in many churches, and it's counterfeited in other churches. And there's considerable debate, confusion, really, about the mysterious workings or manifestations of the Spirit. Uh, the more cautious Christians reduce the Spirit's acts to simply the fruit of the Spirit, described in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these character qualities certainly should mark a person filled with the Spirit. But they kind of don't want anything beyond that. They want to keep things controlled. Others kind of swing the other way, attribute an array of strange behaviors to the acts of the Spirit, like swooning, trancing, barking, shaking, falling, convulsing, gold dust, odd prophecies, misguided leadings, angelic visitations, and bizarre visions. Now, sometimes the Spirit works in unexpected ways, so we, we should be slow to judge. Some of these things very well could be God. And it's hard to judge also from a distance, so we should be slow. But the fact is that there are many things being done in the name of the Holy Spirit that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. And that's why it says in 1 John, we are called to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The most obvious test is the fruit test. You know, is there genuine love? Does the environment reflect the heart of Christ? Is there humility? Are grace and truth evident? Or, or does the vibe feel dissonant in your heart? You know, sometimes you just have that intuitive sense from the Holy Spirit that there's something not right about all of this. And uh, John chapter 10 says that, you know, Jesus' sheep will hear his voice and we will be able to discern these things. But secondly, what are the teachings accompanying these supposed spirit manifestations? Are the teachings sound? Are they biblical? Or are they mixed with human philosophies and even New Age ideas? Is the gospel central? Is it being preached? Does the teaching search hearts and move people toward holiness? 
Are the leaders cocky and boastful? Does this seem like a place the Apostle Paul would feel at home in? We need to understand that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The manifestations in some places are, in fact, real supernatural manifestations, but they are clever, counterfeiting works of devils. And Paul talks about this in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. On that note, or side note, that's why it's so important to know the Word of God. If you're a new Christian, you need to get into the Word. Don't just pray all the time. Don't just listen to uh, Christian music or, or just, you know, get the Word from just going to church and hearing a sermon. Get into the Word every single day. That's how you're going to uh, have that discernment. Satan is clever enough to trick us if we are ignorant of the Word. There's no substitute for just frequently just reading through the Word until the mind of the Spirit who inspired the Word kind of becomes part of you. You begin to think like God thinks. That's a whole other message, but... Well, in the original language that this verse was written in, Greek, I've been told, I don't know Greek, but I've been told that the phrase is in a progressive tense. So it reads more like this. Be being continuously filled with the Spirit. And I think this is important because being filled with the Spirit is not a one-time experience the way, for example, water baptism is. Uh, this can be a little confusing, so I want to explain how this works, all right? When we are born of the Spirit, when we turn our hearts to Christ, whenever that is, whenever that happens in our life, we might be seven years old or, uh, like me, 21 years old. But when we're born of the Spirit, we receive the Spirit. But that doesn't mean we always operate in the same measure of the Spirit. Only Jesus operated in the Spirit without measure. The rest of us need to be filled and refilled again and again. That's why you see the early Christians being filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, right? But then just two chapters later in Acts chapter 4, they're praying again and they're refilled. They get a fresh infilling of the Spirit of God. We can even have the Spirit, but walk in the flesh, that's possible because we still have that flesh sinful nature within us. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, if you live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We can have the Spirit, but actually grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. That's why it's so important how we live, and we're going to talk about that a little bit next week. But here's an illustration to help. It's like if you come to my house and the walls are lined with 
shelf after shelf of record albums. And a state-of-the-art sound system with speakers piped into every room. But it is dead quiet in the house. Is my house filled with music? Yes and no. The music is in the house, but it's not active in this moment. And it's like this with the Spirit. He can dwell within us, but be stifled because of how we are living. But the point I'm making is that the Spirit is not, that the Spirit is, the Spirit in us is not this uh, static thing. It's not like a faucet turned on and always flowing. It's sometimes a trickle, sometimes a stream, sometimes a flood, sometimes it comes to a halt. And we definitely play a role in the measure of the Spirit upon us, but also it's not something we can really control, right? John 3 says the Spirit blows where it wills. So there's a mystery to all this. It's not so simple. Well, I want to just take a moment and talk about the relevance of this. This idea of being filled with the Spirit. This isn't just a bonus thing that it would be cool to be filled with the Spirit, a little extra thing. We absolutely need to be filled with the Spirit to fulfill our mission. So most people... Uh, even if they have a religion, just thinking about our society, Providence and around New England, even in America, but especially, you know, we always think about New England. Uh, most people, even if they have a religion, hold that there are many ways to God and all religions are essentially the same. The important thing they believe is that you follow your beliefs the best you can and also that you don't judge anyone else's beliefs. Uh, people who embrace this pluralism are often well-intentioned, right? And they want to create a more peaceful world. But this is the land that we live in. This is kind of the, the context of ministry that we find ourselves trying to spread the gospel in. It's a land of hundred, really of millions of different religions, worldviews, and standards of right and wrong. The Bible is considered just one of many sacred books out there, many people string together their own homemade worldview that suits them, and that seems to make the most sense to them. But when the Christian message is heard by people, listen, it's just considered one of countless worldview options. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, really, to them. The doctrines of sin and guilt and the virgin birth, the incarnation, atonement, holiness, judgment, eternal hell, Jonah being swallowed by a whale, Jesus walking on water. It's, it's just, it's all totally confusing to people and really hard to take seriously. On top of it, the Christian faith assertion that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life goes against the grain of this dearly held value of believing that all worldviews are valid and to be celebrated. That Christianity condemns other religions makes it, for most people, completely incompatible 
with the values they hold. Is this making sense? I hope. Listen, what I'm trying to say is persuasive biblical teaching is not enough to penetrate this barrier of pluralism and unbelief in our culture. I mean, it's hard to even get a non-Christian to take the time to listen to the gospel or to read the Bible. But if they do, you know, because sometimes they kind of have to because they're stuck at a wedding or a funeral, it is quickly, with most people, quickly discounted. It's instantly diluted by the belief that all religions and worldviews are essentially good. And listen, they might even be inspired by the preaching, moved by the songs, but they don't believe it is true or the only truth. And that is where the filling of the Holy Spirit comes into play and is so important. The Spirit works through us in ways to show people that Christ is not just one of many worldview options. The Spirit of God demonstrates the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. The Spirit has this way of distinguishing the gospel from other religions. The works of the Spirit cut through the unbelief, uh, prick the heart, and awaken people to the reality and nearness of Christ. The Spirit's work confirms the message. In other words, the Spirit causes the message to be heard in a different way. Now, a casual reading through the book of Acts reveals a pattern. I really want to get this through to you today. By the power of the Spirit, the disciples would do something supernatural that could not be explained. They would just kind of blow people away. And the news of it would spread throughout the whole region. And then people would hear and believe the gospel. Mark 16, 20 says it perfectly. They went out, speaking of the disciples, they went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And listen, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us this pattern would be different for us today in 2020. I don't believe we should expect the identical acts of the Spirit, maybe some of them, but in every generation, the divine method for fruitful ministry is the same. And it's this, kind of a simple formula. And you'll see this pattern in the book of Acts, and we're going to kind of skim through the book of Acts and, and kind of take note of this, but you see this pattern. Demonstration of the Spirit's power plus the proclamation of the gospel equals or results in salvation. So demonstration plus proclamation equals salvation or regeneration. And it's not necessarily in that order. 
often there was a demonstration of the Spirit's power and then the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes there was the preaching of the gospel and then there was a supernatural work that was done. But you often see these two things fused together in the ministry, in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the, the early Christians. It was a ministry of power and the preaching. And I think we need that today more than ever. Hebrews 2.4 says, God bore witness by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The works bear witness to the truth of the message. The works confirm the message. So I wish I had time right now just to, uh, just to read through the book of Acts to you. Um, I read it through this week. It was just one I love just, that's one of the books in the Bible that's just good to just read the whole thing from start to finish in one sitting. It's just incredible. Um, but I read it, read it through this week making special note of the supernatural works that were done by men and women, ordinary men and women, filled with the Spirit. And noticing the impact of these works on society, on the unbelieving Gentiles or Jewish people around the surrounding area, whether Jerusalem, but then at one point they're scattered all over the place and the gospel spreads far and wide all the way into Rome. But I was noting, noting this pattern of demonstration, proclamation, and people responding in faith. So I'll just kind of give you a little... Skim, I'm going to talk fast because I want to, but just kind of take this, take this in, uh, focus for a few moments. Just kind of take this and I'm going to preach the entire book of Acts to you in like, you know, eight minutes or something. But Acts starts off with Jesus just before ascending into heaven, telling the disciples that soon they would be baptized in the spirit, right? You know, John baptized in water, but Jesus said, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he said, this is Acts 1a, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so about 120 of them begin to pray night and day. This is Acts chapter 1 in a place called the upper room. And suddenly, we get into chapter 2, suddenly there comes from heaven, after many days of praying, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the entire house, and tongues of fire rest on each of them. And they are all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in other tongues. The languages of the thousands of Jews who were pouring into Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And they were speaking of the mighty works of God in dozens of different languages, but with their Galilean accents. People are blown away by this, amazed and perplexed. Peter gets up and preaches a simple gospel message, and the power of God falls, pricks the hearts of people, and 3,000 people are saved, awakened and added to the family of God in one day. These, remember, were like some of the most devout Jews 
from around the world who instantly set aside years of devotion to Judaism and pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ through water baptism. This was a supernatural work of God. Peter even explained in his sermon that this was that which was prophesied by Joel, that God said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This early group of Christians were described like this. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There was a guy, famous story, a guy crippled from birth, begging at the gate beautiful, and he was immediately healed by Peter as Peter was walking into the temple for a time of prayer. Peter just healed the man instantly, and the healed man started leaping and praising God. And kind of making a scene in Scripture says all the people saw him walking and they recognized him. This is the guy, the crippled man who begs at the gate beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. Peter the opportunist again preaches a message. And Scripture says many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. That's Acts chapter 4 verse 4. And there you again, you just see this pattern of demonstration of God's power, the proclamation of the gospel, and people turning to Christ. Persecution comes upon these fiery preachers. And Peter is, uh, you know, kind of, you know, being uh, grilled, I should say. But the Bible says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he preaches to the persecutors that had the power to throw him in prison or maybe even have him killed. He preaches, uh, even though they're telling him to stop preaching, that's their issue with him, he preaches to them. And when they saw, the Bible says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, fishermen, right? They were astonished. Peter and John go back to the community of believers and they stir up a prayer meeting. And guess what happens? Another powerful outpouring of the Spirit. This is Acts 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Then you see this radical love and generosity that just blooms with the believing community. And they're described as having one heart and one soul. They just had everything in common. They were selling things, selling lands, and just giving uh, the, the money to the church to distribute to the, to the poor and to the widows and to the people who had need. There was just this incredible uh, love that was upon the, the church. But not all the acts of the Spirit were uh, fun and pleasant. Uh, for example, there was a married couple. This is Acts chapter 5 who decided they wanted to appear more generous than they actually were and exaggerated to Peter uh, about a money matter, lied to the Holy Spirit. The lying man was struck down by the Lord instantly. And his wife, who also lied, was struck down shortly after, three hours later. And the scriptures say because of this 
act of God, great fear came upon the whole church, listen to this, and upon all who heard these things. Listen to this description of the early church and note the supernatural element and the effect it was having on society. This is Acts chapter 5, 12 to 16. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. None of the rest, kind of speaking of the people who were not part of the church, people kind of outside of the church, unbelievers, outsiders, none of the rest dared join them. You know, they, they, were, they were a little afraid of just the power of God, especially when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down dead for exaggerating. There was a certain reverence about it all, holiness and awe. So none of, the, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them, the outsiders and unbelievers held them in high esteem. This was no joke. You know, there was no, no they didn't look at the, the church as just this stupid organization or just silliness or shallow or hypocritical. There was a certain uh, fear about it. And it says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Wow. Now, at the height of this success, more persecution breaks out, and the apostles are thrown in prison. Um, James, the apostle, is beheaded. I mean, this is serious, the persecution that happened in the early church. You know, these great, amazing things happened, but the persecution was also fierce and became more and more fierce right through that first century. But the apostles are in prison, but during the night, an angel opens the prison doors and lets them out. The next day, the soldiers and officials were totally perplexed. I mean, that's a whole story in itself. Then there's the, the choosing of men filled with the Holy Spirit, right? That Some call them deacons to assist in the care of widows. One of these was Stephen, who is described as full of grace and power, doing great signs and wonders among the people. And some rose up in opposition to Stephen, but they could not, the Bible says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And Scripture says, and gazing at him, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's Acts 6.15. And after a lengthy, it's a long sermon that Stephen preaches, Scripture tells us, now when they heard these things, the sermon that Stephen preached, they were enraged they ground their teeth at him, but he, listen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as they were, this is supernatural right here. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And 
falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep dead. Saul, later called Paul the Apostle, was present at this brutal stoning of Stephen, preaching Jesus. And Paul, Saul, at this point, his name is Saul, was approving of this persecution. But I can only imagine what was going through Saul's mind. He was certainly impacted by this incredible demonstration of the Spirit's power through the Lord's servant, Stephen. Well, more persecution breaks out, and the believers are scattered to surrounding towns. Philip, he was one of the seven, goes to Samaria, and listen to this description of what happens with Philip. A lot of things happen, but this is just one. The crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. Again, you see the pattern. The preaching of the word was gripping people's Hearts, because of the signs that were being done, demonstration of power, proclamation of the gospel. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Then you see uh, this a couple times in, in the book of Acts, the apostles coming upon uh, some, some people, and they are laying hands on the people, and the Spirit seems to flow out of them like a river. And those being prayed for receive the Spirit. Uh, this reminds me of John 7, that Jesus said, if you believe in me, streams of living water will flow forth from your inmost being. That was happening. And then there are supernatural leadings, uh, like Philip, to reach an Ethiopian man. And then Philip uh, baptizes the Ethiopian man. And when they both went into the water together, and when they came up out of the water, Philip just disappears into thin air and ends up in a town called Azotus. So, yeah, people were talking about that. Two, crazy sign and wonder. Then Saul, you know, the greatest persecutor of Christians, is riding his horse with fury to persecute Christians and throw them in prison and drag them into prison and have them killed or whatever. And Saul, with a bunch of people with him, was suddenly struck by a light from heaven that shone upon him. And he falls to the ground. And he hears the voice of God saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was blinded for three days until Ananias comes and gives him his sight and the filling of the Spirit. There's so much more detail to these stories, but I just want to scan it through. Then Peter raises a woman named Dorcas from the dead in front of a crowd of mourners. Peter has a vision which connects him with some Gentiles who would be the first to receive the gospel. That's Acts chapter 10. And Peter is speaking. It says, 
It says, as Peter was yet speaking, kind of preaching the gospel to these Gentiles who, you know, God didn't really do much for the Gentiles. You know, so this was kind of a new concept, even for the Jewish believers, right? The first, even the 12, uh, it took a lot. It took a crazy vision that Peter had to have to even uh, be open-minded about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. But as Peter is speaking, the Holy Spirit falls and these Gentiles begin to speak in tongues and praise God. Oh, I mean, there's just no time to tell you about Peter's miraculous escape from prison by the angel when all the church was praying for him. And uh, things like the angel of the Lord striking down King Herod for his pride. Or Paul, filled with the Spirit, rebuking Elamas, the magician, and causing him to be blind for a time. I mean, Paul just speaks this word to this new agey magician guy. And like this mist comes over him and he's blinded for a time. I'm like, Whoa, okay, that's a different way to minister to people. But, you know, Paul was kind of fired up because this guy was, Paul was trying to share the gospel with this individual, a proconsul, and Elamas was pulling him away from that. Actually, it says that uh, when, uh, when, when this happened, when Elamas was struck with blindness, the proconsul believed. Again, there's the pattern. The, the miracle, the sign, the wonder, whether it's a sweet one or an unpleasant one, but there's a miraculous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and then the effect on people is like, oh, this is, this is real. And he turned his heart to the Lord. I wish I could tell you about Paul and Silas in jail singing songs when God sends an earthquake that opens all the prison doors. This caused a jailer and his family to believe. Then Paul is, I love this story, preaching and preaching and preaching till midnight. And a guy, I guess, sitting on the third floor window, uh, sitting on the sill, falls out of the window three stories down and dies. Okay, that ends the church service pretty quickly, but Paul's like, no. You know, I'm, Paul goes downstairs and heals the man, raises him from the dead, and then goes back up and continues to preach till daybreak. You better believe these were stories that people told. People were going out and be like, yeah, Paul visited last, you gotta, you gotta hear this. I mean, these are things you tell at work. These are things you tell unbelievers. You, you, you gotta hear this. I mean, this is how the gospel was spreading so much like wildfire because things were happening that were so unbelievable, people could not stop talking about it. At the end of Acts, Paul is shipwrecked on an island called Malta, and he was throwing some sticks on the fire. Do you remember that story? When a viper came out and fastened on his hand. Just this snake came out of the fire and just bit his hand, clung to his hand. And the natives, apparently kind of knowing that particular snake, immediately thought Paul must be a murderer. And this was like justice. This is divine punishment or something on this murderer, this terrible individual. But Paul just shakes the snake into the fire and suffers no harm. The natives were just waiting for his hand to swell up or for him to suddenly die, but nothing and the natives were just blown away, amazed. And in another turn of events, 
Paul heals someone and then sparks everyone on the island to stream to Paul for healing. I mean, Paul's like a total stranger in this place called Malta. And before you know it, like everyone on the whole island is coming to him for healing. And here's the gospel. And before that, before they were shipwrecked on this island, as a prisoner on a ship with 276 people on it, God gave Paul supernatural insight into the course of a storm and exalted Paul. I mean, it's crazy. Exalted Paul from being just a prisoner to a prophet to be able to proclaim Christ to this entire group of people, 276 people on this ship. But do you see the pattern of demonstration of the Spirit's power, proclamation of the gospel, and people turning to Christ? We cannot do the mission of God without the power of God. That's why Jesus said in Mark 16, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. <laughs> and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And I read this earlier, but I'm going to read it again. And then they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So let me tie all this together. You know, Acts 2.39 says, the promise of the Spirit is, quote, for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That means me. That means you. And the spirit we have, listen, is the same spirit that Peter and John, James and Paul have. It's not a different spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, that rose Christ from the dead. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Greater is he that is in us than all the devils in the world put together. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in earthen vessel, in jars of clay, this spirit that resides within us to show the world that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. And Paul said more than once, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So I believe the Lord is eager to demonstrate his power in our generation. I mean, I've seen a measure of this as a Christian for 30-plus years. I've seen the power of God in my own conversion, how radically he just transformed me. 
I've witnessed the manifestation of the tangible presence of God at times in different gatherings when everyone in the room is just overwhelmed and gripped by the imminent presence of a holy God. I've witnessed the word of God preached like fire, convicting and melting hearts and causing grown men to weep and wail in repentance before God. I've heard of mighty physical healings in different parts of the world, not so much here in New England, but certainly in other parts of the world. You might have heard a message recently by Francis Chan, who uh, doesn't really come from necessarily a gifts of the spirit um, background, but he was in, I think, Myanmar and a village in Myanmar, and just everyone in the village who needed healing was healed. And it kind of surprised Francis as much as anyone, because that was the first time he was like used in that kind of supernatural work. And he's probably the least likely person to exaggerate healing or make something up. He's so honest to the bone. So these things happen. And since the beginning of Wren Church, there have been a variety of supernatural acts of the Spirit, such as miraculous provision, encounters with God, deep conversions, the tangible felt presence of God, divine leadings, God-orchestrated circumstances. And you can, you know, if you really want to uh, hear all those, go to the, the website and listen to the Wren history messages that I've done through the years, and I just kind of tell the stories of these crazy things that God has done from the beginning. I'm thankful for all of it, but I'm also honest enough to recognize that during the almost 20 years of Wren ministry, the power and glory of God have been but a tiny fraction of what we see in the book of Acts or what we see in the hundreds of recorded accounts of authentic revival throughout church history. I am fully persuaded that there is much more. Ephesians 3 says, exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or imagine. And I'm also fully convinced that God is not only able, willing, you know, willing but reluctant. No. That God is eager to demonstrate his power in this generation. And that's really what the whole 100 days of pursuit, starting in January, going through to April 10th, is going to be all about. We're just going to dig deep in the wintertime and just kind of harness the pandemic isolation and the, you know, the days that get dark early and uh, just the coldness and all of it and just kind of go deep with God. And I hope you will join me in that, in that pursuit. I want to go after the riches of God like we've never gone after him before. For the sake of his glory, uh, for the sake of our own joy and enjoyment of, of the Lord, but also for the sake of people that we know and love that need a demonstration of the Spirit's power to show them that this is real and this is not just another worldview or another religious creed, that there's power and reality behind the gospel. Amen. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and the musicians are going to come back and close us out with a little music. But, Father, I just ask that you would stir our hearts this Christmas. Lord, I pray that you would 
pour out your glory upon us. Lord, we want to be a church filled with the Spirit. We want to be individuals filled with the Spirit. Lord, we want to be drenched with the Spirit. Lord, we want to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. God, we want more of you. Lord, we, we, we see it, God. We see the promises in Scripture. They're just everywhere, Lord, that you want to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we can even ask or imagine. Lord, even just thinking about the prayers of Paul for the church Lord, you want us to have more, and I pray, God, that we would get hungry. I pray that even today, God, that you would spark within us a fire, spark within us a, a fresh, renewed hunger and thirst for you, God. Lord, I pray that we would go after you, Lord, with determination. Lord, I pray that you would put within us sort of a holy resolve, God, to pursue you night and day until you pour out your glory upon your people. Lord, we need you. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening.